Today we have two Bible readings. The first one is Genesis 22 verses 1 to 19 and the second is Galatians 3 verses 7 to 14. Genesis 22. Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrificing there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Bathsheba and Abraham stayed in Bathsheba. The second Bible reading comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus, so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Today we continue our little series in the book of Genesis. And if we'd read from the start of Genesis, we would have seen that God is the amazing creator of the universe. And he created humanity, created us, the pinnacle of his creation, that we would relate to him, that we would know him, love him, and enjoy him forever. Humanity was placed in the garden, God's place, where there was blessing under God's rule. However, humanity, Adam and Eve, and indeed absolutely every single one of us since then, have rebelled against God. We've declared our autonomy, we've gone our own way, we've done our own thing. And just like any relationship where the person that should be treated as they should be treated is ignored, uh, our relationship with God fell apart. That relationship for which we were created fell apart and the relationships around us, Adam and Eve, relationships that we have, broken. The relationship that we have with the world around us, that God has placed us in, well, it's trashed. We've just been doing that since the get-go. And relationship, even within ourselves, broken. But if humanity's response to God's authority and his creative right to rule over us was to rebel against him then God's response to that rebellion was not to zot us all off, as really we all deserve, but actually his response was to restore. That's his response to our rebellion. And uh, we see this act of restoration beginning with God entering with a promise, a promise to Abram, a promise of a land, of a nation and of blessing to others. In a sense, this promise of God is to restore all things. It's, it's reversing the effects of our rebellion right back in the early chapters of Genesis. This promise is, in effect, God's people in God's place under God's loving rule and care. It's God's provision to restore the relationship for which we were created, not just relationship with Him, but to restore the relationships with each other and ultimately the relationship with the world that God has put us in. And Abram's response to this promise of, 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 of land and of blessing and of descendants, what, what was Abraham called to do? All he was called to do was to trust. To trust in the promise. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Trust in God. Trust in God's promise trust in God's salvation trust in God's restoration faith that's what it is it's trusting the promise of God it's not a crutch for the weak faith is simply believing or trusting a message enough to act upon it actually there's nothing religious or superstitious or mystical about this at all it's it's something that we all do every day just as an offhand example, if you happen to believe that there is such a thing called COVID hanging around at the moment and it, and it is sort of dangerous to you, 
then you will listen and you will act on the advice that's uh, given to you. Faith or belief is just simply trusting a message enough to act upon it. But if you don't believe that there's something called COVID hanging around that's dangerous, well, then you probably won't listen or won't want to listen or you certainly won't want to act on those who are saying that it's a problem. We do this every single day. But Abraham was called and he did indeed trust the promises of God, albeit feebly. He is no perfect uh, person. He's just like the rest of us. But we have observed his trusting in the promises of God in chapter 12 where he does leave his country where God calls him to go, to leave and to go to the place and although he's not a perfect man we see him trusting the promises of God in chapter 15 and there God credits this to him as righteousness showing that even under the old covenant even in the early chapters of the Bible we are right with God not because of anything that we do but because of trusting in his salvation promises. And we saw him given the sign of the covenant that God provided uh, back last week. And here today in Genesis chapter 22, we see this trust, this uh, belief, if you like, in the promises of God, we see it being tested, his trust in God being tested. This uh, testing of Abraham is not like the testing that Satan might give to us in order to take us away from God. No, this testing that God gives is to show uh, what is in Abraham's heart. Was it genuine or just something that he was uh, mouthing off? Now, we all understand the importance of testing. Uh, we, we, we get this. Uh, we we uh, know at the moment there's a lot of testing that's been going on for a vaccine. And uh, you know and I know that uh, if we're going to take a vaccine, we want it tested first. We don't want someone to go, well, I think this might work and uh, let's have a go at it. Let's just uh, get everyone vaccinated with this. No, no, we had it, have it tested. We have the government authorities, we have scientists and all these sort of medical people uh, having a look at how it is. Is it effective? Is, is it going to work? And this is a sort of test in, in a sense that Abram is uh, going through. But rightly to our ears, this testing of Abram's uh, faith in God, it is huge, is it not? And it, and it hits the very point of Abram's life where he is most concerned. His descendants, he's got one son, Isaac, that is God's choice. He had a, we know he had Ishmael, that was not God's choice. He, he, he didn't do things God's way. That son was out of the picture. His only son, his loved son, his dearly loved son, as this passage tells us, was, was really his future. Bundled up there in what was probably now a, a boy of maybe some 13 years of age. God was really touching Abraham where it hurt to test the genuineness of his love and his trust in God. And the agony, the agony that Abraham must have endured from the moment that God told him to sacrifice him, from that moment on, that agony must have been absolutely unbearable. We have no idea how deep and how horrid uh, that agony would have been. 
And it would have just wouldn't have made sense to Abraham uh, to hear this word. Like, uh, hang on, you want me to sacrifice this son? They'd waited 25 years, by the way, from the time that uh, God said they would have a son until Isaac came along. And now he's, well, he's old enough to carry wood. uh, So we assume that maybe he's 13, somewhere around there. Here's here's the sign, here's here's the descendant. He's the one through whom the promises of God are going to take effect. Why, why, why are we doing this, God? I'm sure that was, well, maybe that was a question, but he seems to act fairly quickly on the command. Now, it is true that some religions of that day practiced child sacrifices. We, we find it like, what? That is just weird. That's abhorrent. But it is true that there were religions of the day that practiced child sacrificing. And we know if we read the Bible from this point onwards, we won't get very far until we find God outlawing it and prohibiting it in law. And we also will see that, uh, that those of the nation of Israel who, who did go down that road of child sacrificing, well, they were punished severely. And some of them were kings of Israel, kings even King Solomon himself seemed to go into sit in the, the, the back seats of the temple of Molech where they practiced this very thing, having been taken away to other religions by one of his wives or maybe a few of them. But even so, even so, even though this was something that was sort of practiced around the day and at that time, it was a massive thing. Now, some people say that this incident in Genesis 22 was, a, was there to straighten out the demonic practices of other religions. That may well be true, but that aside, it's a huge task. It's a huge thing to ask for Abram to do. But Abram acts. Verse 3, we see him early, early the next morning... I mean, it's quite extraordinary. It's early the next morning. He gets up. He saddles the donkey. He chops the wood. I mean, things that his servants would have normally have done, but he's doing it. And he gets his servants together and off they go. They go off to Mount Moriah. We will come back to that. That's the place where God tells them to go. It's the place, clearly it's a place of God's choice. And on the third day, they arrive at Mount Moriah. And verse 5, Abram says to his servants, you stay here with the donkey, the boy and I will go but, uh, and worship and then we will come back to you. That's a really interesting little uh, verse in verse 5. He, he's, he is somehow in that three-day journey of great depth, he has come to the conclusion that that boy Isaac, it's not going to be the end of him. We will come back to you, he says to his servants. Did he know? What did he know? We don't know absolutely everything that he knew, but we do know the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that Abram, having believed God, believed that even under these circumstances, even if the boy was, was killed as a sacrifice, that God would raise him from the dead. Extraordinary trust 
in God, the creator, in God, the provider. We're not told of any conversation between Abram and Isaac during those heavy, very heavy days of journey. But the sacrifice is broken in verse 7 where Isaac asks his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham, Abram's reply affirms that the Lord God himself would provide for the offering. And so they walk on together to the place where God had told them, leaving the servants and leaving the donkey behind. And there the altar is set up, the wood is put in place and Isaac is bound and placed on the altar and the knife comes out. But the silence is broken quickly and unmistakably from heaven in verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. And then God says, Now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And with that, Abraham, in keeping to what he's already said to Isaac in verse 8, God himself provides. God himself provides for the burnt offering. And there, verse 13, Abraham looks and sees a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. A substitute provided so the sacrifice could be made and the worship of God was received. And then Abraham, Abraham and Isaac return to the servants and the donkey just as he said that they would. In contrast to the horror and the heaviness of the journey to Mount Moriah, there they return with great relief knowing that the provision of the Lord, the substitute, had been given. And Abraham names that place after the hope that he had expressed as they walked up that hill, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And Moses, as he puts this account together uh, later on, says that uh, to this day, to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And then there's the final word of promise to Abraham from verse 16, the last recorded word to Abraham, we hear God say, echoing the very first words we heard hear God speak to Abraham at least recorded words of promise of descendant and land and blessing and yet here they are put more personally and indeed more strongly to Abraham because you have done this 
and have not withheld your son, your only son, verse 16 and 17, I will surely bless you. The promise of God written again with a, you know, with a highlighter pen, I will surely bless you. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And, and with the addition now, as, as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Wow! That's massive. The provision of God. And your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, there will be a source of blessing to the entire world. And we know God did that. We know God granted this. We know God was faithful to his promise. We know God was faithful to his ability to provide the land. They got it. Canaan. The nation grew strong. Abram's offspring, a blessing. A blessing to the nations and ultimately... As Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Abram's offspring, his seed, Jesus, is the one through whom the blessing of God to the entire world would come. It's the provision of God. On this mountain, the Lord will provide. What are we to make of this account? What are we to do with it? Here are some closing thoughts. There are many, many more that have uh, gone onto my cutting room floor. Here's just a few. Firstly, we are rightfully horrified, are we not, by the thought of child sacrifices. And we do know that it was never God's intent for Abram to sacrifice his child. In fact, if we read, continue, as I've already said, the, the, the Bible will find out that God prohibits this. However, this passage, it takes us to the very edge, to the very edge of the tension between the love of, his, of a father for his son it takes us to the very edge of that tension where we see the love of the Father for His one and only beloved Son and the justice required of a holy God for a sacrifice for rebelliousness. And yet we're taken to the edge of that horror and pulled back at the very last second to a place of safety where we, we, we come to understand it was never God's intention to, to have any child sacrificed at all. At least a human sacrifice. It was always his intention to provide a substitute. In contrast to the child sacrifices of the day, God had a different plan a different provision. Isaac's life spared, substitute offered. It's God's heartbeat of mercy to offer a substitute for us that deserve the punishment. And the real shock of this, the real scandal of this, 
is not that God demanded Abraham to do this, but that God demanded this very thing, the sacrifice of his one and only dearly loved son, for you and for me. Because this incident points very, very, so very clearly to the day when another father would take his son, God the Father, would walk his son to that very place and on that day he would not spare him. But as Paul writes in Romans 8, he would deliver him up for us all. There the love of God and the justice of God meet and kiss in perfect harmony that you and that I could be spared the condemnation that we deserve. That's the shocking thing for us. Oh, we're far too quick to go, oh, that sounds odd, for God to ask him to do that to his son. The thing is, we all deserve this. And yet God has provided a substitute, a sacrifice in our place. Now, I don't know if you realise this or not, but that very mount, Mount Moriah, uh, would become a place where it's recorded in uh, 2 Samuel 24, where a plot of land on Mount Moriah was purchased from a guy called Aranya the Jebusite. It's all recorded. And that place became the site of the temple where sacrifices were made for our sin. And yet they, every one of them, pointed to the sacrifice of God the Son, God's dearly, dearly loved one and only Son. All of those sacrifices on that mountain pointed to that day when God the Father walked that road with his Son and did not spare him for us. There's no greater love. There's no greater love that you'll ever see than the love of God for you and for me where God would not spare his son but deliver him up for us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Remind you of Genesis 22? It was written to remind us of Genesis 22. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, whoever trusts in the promise, the salvation promise, whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. The provision of God on that mountain on that mountain, the Lord will provide. See the horror of our sin that caused the Son of God to stand, to lie in that place and be slain 
for us. How deep the Father's love for us, a love beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch, that's me, that's us, to make a wretch his treasure. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On this mountain, on this mountain the Lord will provide. And just as Abraham was confident that Isaac would return with him down back to the servants, back to the donkey, he, as the book of Hebrews says, received Isaac back, as it were, from the dead, having been spared by the substitute. It reminds us, does it not, of Jesus? who on the third day God raised from the dead. Did Abraham see and understand the truths of Jesus and his provision? I think it was a grace and mercy that the Lord God gave to him, that he would see these things. Because Jesus himself in John chapter 8 says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And I understand that, I would say that God in his mercy allowed Abram to see and maybe even Isaac, as Abraham would have told him, that one day this point would point to a provision for the sins of the whole world. And he names that mountain. He names that mountain the Lord will provide, verse 14. Don't know if you've thought about this. He could have named that mountain, you know, a lot, of, a lot of things. He could have named it stuff that he experienced. That would be something that, that you know, a modern day person would have done, you know, something that I've done. It could have been, you know, he could have named it Heartbreak Hill or Misery Mount or, or, or you know, what God might have done for me. God provided for me on that day. But no, he didn't call it that. He didn't call it anything looking to himself. He called it the mountain of the Lord. The Lord will provide. He didn't call it what he did provide. He called it what it, it will provide. The Lord will provide. His focus was not on his grief, but God's glory. Not on his misery, but God's mercy. Not on his suffering for what he went through, but on the substitute that God provided. And ultimately, it wasn't named after his agony, but it pointed to God the Father's agony, where he would not spare his own son, and yet in great triumph, bringing him back as it were, yes, very much so, from the grave. Friends, are we trusting in God's provision? We have a great provision laid out for us here. In the old covenant in Genesis 22, showing the heartbeat of God in love, in mercy, to provide a substitute. But we know that this points to Jesus. Because we know that on this mountain the Lord did provide all those centuries later. Are we trusting him? 
Are we looking to the cross where he died for us? Or are we still trusting somehow in ourselves or what we've done? You see, we enter the covenant with God in agreement with him and we enter into his righteousness in just the same way that Abraham did. We enter it by trusting the salvation promise of God, trusting Jesus. And Paul writes in Galatians that, you know, we are children of Abraham if we trust the promise of God. Every tribe, everyone from every nation coming into the blessing of God. And are we trusting God for his daily grace? If we've trusted him for our salvation, are we trusting him for daily grace? Because we too may be tested. Our faith may be tested in so many ways. I'm sure it is at the moment for many of us. Our security may be tested. Our family, we may have trouble with, 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 our, with our children, with our parents. Our pride may be cut low, testing money. We might not know how we're going we're to go, but are we trusting God's ultimate provision? We see this in Genesis 22 laid out for us physically in history, tangibly, audibly, so that we can see the heartbeat of God to provide. Are we trusting in him? We can. We have nowhere else to go. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you from the bottom of our heart for the provision of your substitute, your one, your only, your beloved son. We thank you that he was delivered up for us all so that we could be spared, forgiven, welcomed, and enjoy the future with you. May we trust him and we may we find the provision of your grace sufficient for this day, for every day. And so not look to our own self or strength, but in you, our great loving provider. Amen.